John chapter 15, verse 1. Hear the words of Christ. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let us go now to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. So we have concluded our study of 1 Timothy. I did thoroughly enjoy preaching through that letter. I do believe it was also a timely study for our congregation. But now I would like to spend some time with you in the Psalms. I'm not entirely sure how long we will be here. If I were to guess, I don't have it all planned out. I would say no fewer than five weeks and no more than ten. So, for a time, we will be in the Psalms. And obviously, I will not be preaching through the whole book of Psalms in that amount of time. That would take years. Instead, I will select only a few Psalms. And my intention is to select psalms from a variety of genres or categories. As you probably know, there are different types of psalms. There are psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, psalms of confidence, to name just a few of them. And I think it is good for the congregation to be exposed to the diversity within within the Psalter. And so that is what we will do. We will spend some time in the psalms and we will consider a variety of psalms. Now, please do allow me to make some brief remarks about the Psalms in general by way of introduction to this little series that we are now entering into. We've been studying the Psalms in Sunday school for about nine weeks now. We have a couple of weeks left. I think it is actually ten weeks that we've been there. 
And so some of this will be review for those who have attended that class. These are general remarks about the Psalms. One, notice that there are 150 Psalms in total. And each Psalm does stand alone. You, you saw me fight against this a little bit in the introduction, calling it Psalm chapter 1. Why did I say maybe I shouldn't say chapter? Because there are not chapters to the Psalms in the way that there are uh, chapters uh, to the book of 1 Timothy that we uh, just studied. There is Psalm 1, and then there is Psalm 2. There are 150 Psalms, and each of them do stand alone. Two, these Psalms are in fact songs. They were written for God's people to sing, and God's people have sung the Psalms for generations. The faithful who lived prior to the birth of Christ sung the Psalms. Christ and His disciples sung the Psalms, and the Christian church has sung the Psalms. And perhaps you have noticed that as of late we have been introducing psalms into our singing. Uh, that is because we desire to be faithful to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God, as Paul commands in Colossians 3.16 and also Ephesians 5.19. So here in the Psalter we find 150 psalms and they are songs. Three, these 150 psalms have been organized into five books. Notice the heading above Psalm 1. The heading says, Book 1. And if you were to turn over to Psalm 42, you would notice the heading, Book 2. Book 3 begins with Psalm 73, Book 4 with Psalm 90, and Book 5 with Psalm 107. And so these 150 psalms are organized into five books. 4. Though the Psalms are typically attributed to King David, David was not the only one to write them. He wrote many of them, and there are other reasons why they are attributed to him, which I don't have the time to go into here. Um, in fact, so David did write Psalm 1, which we will be considering today, but there are many other authors, including but not limited to Solomon, Moses, the sons of Korah, and Asaph. So there are many authors. 5. It is clear then that these psalms were not written all at once. I think many Christians do have this misconception. They think David wrote all of them and he wrote all of them obviously in his lifetime. No, there are many authors and they were not all written at once. The oldest psalm is Psalm 90, which was written by Moses. So that places uh, the date of, of that psalm, the writing of that psalm, to approximately 1500 B.C. And there is another psalm which appears to have been written at the time of the return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity. That is Psalm 126, and that took place in 538 B.C. So you see that the psalms were composed over a 1,000-year period of time. Six, that begs the question, who brought the psalms into this final form? Who organized them into the five books, giving each psalm its particular place? Have you ever wondered about that? Who brought it into its final form? Uh, scholars have suggested that it was a priest or scribe who lived at the time of the return from Babylonian captivity. Maybe it was Ezra. Maybe it was Nehemiah or someone like them. I think this is a very reasonable and very plausible explanation. Uh, these 150 psalms were at some point gathered together, organized, and we have them in this form in the canon of Scripture. All of it is deliberate. All of it is intentional. I even would say, certainly would say, it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as uh, God's ministers under the Old Covenant did manage even uh, the organization 
of Holy Scripture. Seven, that begs another question. If the Psalms are not organized chronologically, and they are not, I just told you that Psalm 90 is the oldest and Psalm 126 is the newest. And if they are not organized according to author, again, they are not. The Psalms of David are peppered throughout the Psalter, and uh, so it's not organized in this way. Then how are they organized? Is the order random? Now stay with me here. I think all of this is very important. It's insightful. It will help us when we finally do come to Psalm 1 in just a moment. Uh, Is it random? Some wonderful work has been done on this question. In particular, I do appreciate the work of O. Palmer Robinson, uh, Robertson, rather, in his book, The Flow of the Psalms. There are others who have done good work on this too. But he recognizes that the Psalms are all about God's king and God's kingdom. And his theory is that the five books of the Psalter are organized according to the theme of the development of the kingdom of Israel under David. He claims that the theme of book one is confrontation. As you know, King David took the throne through trial and tribulation, and so it was for David's greater son, Jesus the Christ. How did David and David's greater son, Jesus the Christ, come to have the kingdom? Uh, through, through confrontation, through trouble. And Robinson, Robertson says, I'm getting his name wrong here, aren't I? I don't want to do that. Robertson says that the book... Uh, has uh, this theme, book one does, uh, the theme of confrontation or trouble. Book two, he says, has the theme of communication corresponding to the establishment of the kingdom of Israel under David and ultimately Christ. These psalms in book two carry the theme of hope in the midst of distress. Book three has a theme of devastation. If you know the history of Israel, you know that after David and after Solomon, the kingdom was divided and eventually destroyed. It's a sad history, really. And the question on everyone's mind must have been, what are we to make of this? Will God keep His promise to David? You remember that God entered into a covenant with David, that He would have an everlasting kingdom, that His Son would sit on the throne forever and ever. So, what are we to make of this? The divided kingdom, and eventually the the exile itself into Babylon. What are we to make of all of this devastation? Uh, Where is God? Where is He? Has He abandoned His people? I think we are to recognize that that was the question as Jesus hung on the cross and as He laid in the grave. Where is God? Will He keep His promises? And so the third book of the Psalter does carry this theme of of devastation. Book 4 has a theme of maturation. Psalm 90 is the first psalm of Book 4. And the first words of Psalm 90 are, Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Remember I said that Psalm 90 was written by Moses. And so after that devastating book, where is God? Will He fulfill His promises and keep them? Uh, the people of God are scattered and devastated. The, 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 the kingdom is in such a bad state. Will God keep His promises? The very first psalm is Psalm 90 of Book 4. And here the mature response is brought forth. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. This was written by Moses. So here the people of God are reminded that God is faithful. God was faithful to Moses. God was faithful to Israel to bring them through the wilderness and into the land of promise. And He will be faithful to us too. Our God is a covenant making, and even more significant to the point here, and He is a covenant keeping God. And so that is, I think, the theme 
of Psalm 90 and the entire fourth book of the Psalter. This is the mature perspective that the people of God must maintain from generation to generation. And finally, book 5 carries the theme of consummation. In book 5, we are carried along to the heights of the praise of God Almighty. And you will notice that the last five psalms begin and end with the exhortation, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The last five psalms begin and end with this emphasis. And consider Psalm 150, the very last psalm in the Psalter. It not only begins and ends with the words, praise the Lord. The whole psalm exhorts us to do this very thing. I will read it to you now. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I say, wow. When you consider the Psalter and the way that it concludes, wow, this is incredible. And, and you know now why the book was known to the Hebrews as the book of praises. The Psalms are, are the book of praises. We know that the Psalms do not only have praises in them. There are wisdom sayings, there are laments, there are imprecations found within the Psalms too. But the book does move us to praise. That is, that is its purpose. It moves us to praise the Psalms are songs for worship, and the Psalms do climax with a grand call to worship. This book aims to move us to praise the Lord. So though it is true that each Psalm stands alone, there is also a structure to the Psalms. The five books are carefully organized, and there is a structure to each of the five books with little clusters of Psalms positioned, intentionally here and there to give emphasis to certain themes. When you're reading the Psalms, you're to... Keep this in mind. Each one stands alone, but the meaning of the Psalter as a whole can be ascertained as we pay attention to this structure that I have only very briefly and rapidly set before you. There's more to say about this. There's much more. But this is an introduction to Psalm 1. And speaking of Psalm 1, I will now ask eighthly the question... Is there something significant about this psalm which has been placed in the first position in the Psalter? So there's a structure to the psalms. Carefully organized, carefully organized. What about Psalm 1? Is there a reason why it has been placed in the first position so that it is the first psalm that we encounter? The answer, certainly yes. In fact, we must see that both Psalms 1 and 2 have been carefully selected and critically placed at the introduction to the Psalter. They have been called the twin pillars of the Psalter, the grand pillars that we, we must walk in between to enter the Psalms. And as we consider Psalm 1 today and Psalm 2 on the next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will notice that Psalm 1 is law and Psalm 2 is gospel. And so to enter the Psalter, we must first consider law and we must consider gospel. What is law? God's law reveals 
what it is that God requires of us. God's law says, do this and you shall live. And no, God's law is not confined to the first five books of the Bible, but is found throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. Commandments are found throughout the Scriptures, and Psalm 1 is certainly law, as we will soon see. It teaches us how we must walk if we wish to have abundant life and to stand before God in the judgment. It is law. Now, I must warn you ahead of time that God's law cuts in two directions now that we are fallen into sin. On the one hand, the law tells us how we must live, and that is good. It is a light to our feet, and we must use it as such. But on the other hand, the law also reveals that we have come short of it, doesn't it? And so it cuts in these two directions. It is a light to our feet, that is good, we must use it as a light to our feet, but it also condemns us at the same time. God's law cuts in two directions now that we are fallen into sin. It is also good that the law reveals our sin, isn't it? It is not good that we have sinned, but thanks be to God that we have His law to show us our sin, for this is truth, this is the reality of our condition. The law of God says, do this and you shall live. What then is gospel? The gospel is the good news that despite our failure to keep God's law, a Savior has been provided. And in Him, through faith in Him, we find refuge from the wrath of God due to us for our sin. Psalm 1 is law, as we will soon see, but Psalm 2 is gospel. And as I said, we will consider Psalm 2 in detail next Sunday, Lord willing. But but I can demonstrate very quickly that Psalm 2 is gospel. Let me do that now. Look at the beginning of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This this is not good, what we are reading at the beginning of Psalm 2. It is a description of humanity in rebellion against God and His anointed, that is to say, God and His Messiah. The nations, the peoples of the earth are living in rebellion against God. They are plotting against Him. They are seeking to cast off His bonds. They are raging. Not good. Look at the middle of Psalm 2. In verse 6, God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So God, we learn, has appointed a king. And we learn in the verses that follow that this king is the king of kings. He will have the nations as his heritage, the ends of the earth as his possession. Again, this is not good news for the rebellious kings and the rebellious people because this son of God will judge the nations with a rod of iron. These nations and these peoples who have rebelled against God, who rage and who seek to cast off God's bonds, they will be judged by the Son, with a rod of iron. Not good news, but look now to the end of Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So there is gospel. There is good news. Though judgment is coming, there is a Savior. 
the Son, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, this Son who will judge the nations in their rebellion at the end of time, is also here called a refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The word blessed is significant. You will notice that Psalm 1 begins with the word, what? Blessed or blessed. It means happy. And Psalm 2 concludes with the word blessed. We will come back to this at uh, the end of the sermon. But for now, please know that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they belong together. They are the pillars that we must walk between in order to enter into the book of Psalms. They are law. They are gospel. And so let us now enter into the Psalter by walking between these pillars. Today we will consider the pillar of Psalm 1, which teaches us the way to go if we wish to please God, to be happy and to have everlasting life. And next Sunday we will shift our attention to the pillar of Psalm 2 to consider the gospel. Though we have all rebelled against the Lord and come short of His holy law, God has provided a Savior so that we might take refuge in Him. He is the Anointed One, the Messiah. In Psalm 1, two paths are set before us. There is the way of righteousness, and there is the way of wickedness. There is the way of the righteous, there is the way of the wicked. There is the way of life, and there is the way of death. And you should notice from the outset, there is no other way, only these two. The way of the righteous may also be called the way of life, for this is what it produces, this is where it leads, it leads to life. And this way, the way of life, is set before us in verses 1 through 3. In verse 1 we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed means happy. So the Psalms begin with a description of the man or woman who is happy. Do you wish to be happy? I think that is a very legitimate question to ask. Do you wish to be happy? Do you wish to have a blessed life? The message here in Psalm 1 is then take this path. Take this path. Of course, this is no superficial or fleeting happiness that is being described here. No, this is true happiness. This is lasting happiness. This describes the one who is deeply satisfied and full of life, full of life abundant, life eternal. Do you wish to have that? Do you wish to be happy in this life and in the life to come? Then take this path. And you will notice that this way of life is first described in negative terms. Blessed is the man who walks not. Blessed is the man who walks not, the psalm says. Life is a journey. We are sojourners. We live one moment, one day, one week, and year at a time. And so the life of a man is described using the metaphor of walking. And if we wish to have a blessed life, then here is the path that we must not follow. We must not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And perhaps you can see that there is a downward progression here. If we wish to be blessed, then we must not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And I want you to see that the text does not say, do not walk in the presence of the wicked. We have no choice but to walk in the presence of the wicked. The righteous must live in this world. And in this world there are many who have taken the path of sin and death. The righteous must walk in their presence 
in order to shine as lights in the darkness. So no, the text does not say presence, but counsel. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Do not walk with the wicked to learn from them, to take advice from them, to be influenced by them, to go in the way that they have gone. Do not do that. I think this is a very important lesson for young and old, but it is especially important for our young people to hear this, isn't it? Do you wish to be blessed? Do you wish to be happy in life? Do you wish to have that which is good? Then do not go this way. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Do not make them your close companions to be influenced by them and to learn from them, though you might have them as acquaintances. Do not make them your dear friends, your close companions, because they are on the wrong path and you must be on the right path. In life there are two ways. There is the way of life and the way of death, only these. And as you choose your path, be sure that you do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. I, I think the older we get, the more we, who are getting older, feel obligated to plead and to beg with our young people to not go the wrong way. Why? Because we see where it leads more clearly than we saw it when we were young. Life experience does something about that, doesn't it? You, you, you've observed, you know, and you have watched those who have taken the way of life and what it produces. You say that is good. And you've also observed those who have taken the way of death. And it's sobering. This is heavy, serious stuff. And so we who are a bit older look at the young and say, please think about this. Please consider this. Young people, Please consider these two ways. There are only two. There are, there are no more than this. There is the way of life. There is the way of death. The way of the righteous. The way of the wicked. Do not go the way of the wicked. Do not walk with the wicked to take counsel from them. And so, young people, I am shamelessly pleading with you, begging with you, to go in the right way. As you walk in this world, who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you being influenced by? Who are you looking to as a model and a guide? And I suppose there was a day when this applied mainly, or maybe only, in a literal sense. Who are you surrounding yourself with, literally? But in our day and age, the question must be asked also digitally. I can't say that word for some reason. Who are your counselors? Who is influencing you? Whose view of the world are you adopting as your own? It may be someone that you have never met face to face in this modern day. So please hear me. I am not suggesting that you live an isolated life. The call is not to pull away entirely from all who are ungodly. No, but instead I am calling you to consider who it is that you walk with, either literally or digitally, so as to be influenced by them. And brothers and sisters, young and old, we are to influence the world. We are not to be influenced by the world. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And then we read, nor stands in the way of sinners. And so do you see the progression? Those who choose to walk in the counsel of the wicked will soon find themselves standing with sinners. We're to picture a man or a woman who is now comfortable with the company of sinners. No longer are they merely being influenced by them concerning the way they should go. Now they are standing with them in the wrong way. They are keeping company with them. They are a part of the group now, you see. And then next we are warned, do not sit 
in the seat of scoffers. The downward progression continues. The one who chooses the wrong path first walks in the counsel of the wicked. Then they begin to stand with sinners. And finally, they just sit down amongst the scoffers. You know, they are very comfortable now. It is who they are. They are one of them. They sit with the scoffers. In, in wisdom literature, scoffers are those who live in rebellion against God, who hate knowledge and love folly. Proverbs 1.22 says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And in Proverbs 21.24 we read, Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Have you ever met a scoffer before? I have. I've met quite a few. They are those who live in sin and rebellion against God, and they do so proudly. You know, they do so with a kind of uh, confidence. They are worldly through and through. They are puffed up with pride and conceit. They love what is evil and they hate what is good and they scoff at God and the people of God. How did the scoffer become a scoffer? How did they get there? Well, at some point they began to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Then they began to stand in the way of sinners and then they took their seat amongst the scornful. So do you wish to be blessed? Do you wish to be happy, truly happy in life? Then do not go the way of the wicked. The blessed man, the blessed woman, does not go this way. And in verse 2 we read, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So here, here the way of the blessed man is described, not in negative terms, but in positive terms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Notice something very, very important. The righteous way begins in the heart. Do you see it? Taking the righteous way, the way of life, it it begins in the heart. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the text says. And I should say that the same is also true for the way of the wicked. The wicked go in that way, that bad way, because they first walk in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, they delight in the counsel of sinful man. And so the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous are contrasted here. But the difference is first in the heart. It is a matter of delight. These two ways that are set before us here in in this psalm, they do manifest themselves in real walking and real talking. These ways do show themselves in either sinful or holy living, but the choice of the one path or the other is made first in the mind and in the heart. It is about delight before it is about behavior. Please understand this. It is about delight before it is about behavior. I think that word delight is such a powerful word. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. This means that he takes great pleasure in God's law. He loves it. He's drawn to it. He sees it as good and beautiful. And he takes pleasure in it. Have you ever delighted in something? That's almost a silly question. I know that you have. Have you ever delighted in something? Yes. Every human does. We have this this wonderful capacity to perceive things outside of ourselves, to consider them to be either good or bad, lovely or unlovely, to move towards that which we consider to be good and lovely, to move away from that which we consider to be unlovely, and to delight in that thing that we have considered to be good, whatever it may be, an object, a person, 
or a thought. I mean, this is a part of what it means to be human. We have this capacity to delight in things. And what we delight in does truly determine the course of our lives. Do you realize that? Why do you do what you do? Why do they do what they do? It's about delight, really. It's about love. It's about treasure. Things like this. It's the decisions that are made in the mind. It's the condition of the heart that produces the way of life, the behavior. Please grasp this. Please grasp this. You know, as a pastor, I do often provide counsel to people who are struggling with sin. It may be sin in the mind, or it may be sin involving word or deed. And I really don't want to come across as overly simplistic here. This is a complicated issue. There's so many factors that come into play. But one thing that we certainly cannot do is ignore the heart. Where is your heart? What do you love? What do you delight in? This is how human behavior works. We move towards that which we love. And yes, it is true there are bad habits to be broken. Yes, there is thinking to be altered. Yes, we are also body and soul. And sometimes body and soul relate to one another in strange and and complicated ways. All of that is true. But it is the heart that determines our behavior. As Christ said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. These are the words of Christ. Why do we say the things we say and do the things we do? Well, it's complicated, yes. But if we were to get down to the root of the issue, it's about the heart. So I am asking you, brothers and sisters, young and old, what do you delight in? What is your greatest love? What is your treasure? And I hope that you would say, God is my delight. I love Him more than all. Above all, I long to know, worship, and serve Him. As I read that now, I'm going, this sounds like Christianese. It's not. You need to reflect upon this. What do you delight in? I hope it is God. I hope that your greatest delight is God. I hope that you love Him more than all. I hope that you long, above all else, to know Him, to worship Him, and to serve Him. And friends, I am saying to you that this is the beginning of the way of righteousness. Stated differently, this is what distinguishes between the two ways. The one who is blessed delights in God and in His law, whereas the wicked delight in the world and in the things of this world. Stated in yet another way, the righteous happily walk in submission to God and His law, whereas the wicked walk in slavish submission to other things. They submit to their sinful passions. They submit to the wisdom and philosophy of this world. They submit to the voice of the evil one. So what do you, what do you delight in? If you would like to talk more about that, I'd be happy to meet with you personally, by the way, because sometimes it can be difficult to determine what it is that you delight in. But I will say this before moving on. If you are struggling with some sin, if you are struggling with some sin that is habitual and you wish to be free from it, uh, yes, new habits need to be relearned. Old habits need to be put off. Yes, your thinking may need to change. But at the core of it is this, delight. You love something. 
that you should not love. You love the world and not God. And that has to be dealt with. We have to pray to God that He would give us His grace to transform our hearts. And in fact, we do have to set our love and our delight upon the right thing, upon God Almighty. We must make this decision. Stop feeding the beast, brothers and sisters. Stop going in the wrong way and delighting in the wrong things, but delight in God, delight in His law. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So to meditate is to ponder something. The one who is righteous delights in God's law in the heart and reflects upon it continuously in the mind. And brothers and sisters, we must know God's law. We must know what it is. We must also understand what it requires and what it forbids. Come on the Lord's Day afternoon, please, to learn more about God's law what it requires, and what it forbids. We are studying the Ten Commandments even now. We must know what it requires and what it forbids, but we must also have the wisdom to apply it so that we do in fact keep it in the whole of life, and that is what is described here. The blessed man walks not by the counsel of the wicked, but according to God's counsel. The blessed man delights in God's law. He meditates upon it continuously, not just to think about God's law, but so that he might walk according to it in all things. It's going to determine the direction of his life. So, dear friends, I am saying to you, if you wish to be happy, then live in obedience to your Maker. This is where true happiness is found. Submit to Him. Receive His Word. Meditate upon it to understand what your God requires of you. And then walk accordingly. This is where abundant life is found. In verse 3, the righteous man is described as being like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is the description of the, of the righteous man. What a beautiful image this is, and it is true. You know that trees do not flourish unless they are watered. And neither do men flourish unless their souls are nourished by God. So God is the stream of water in this metaphor. He waters His people by the streams of His Word and Spirit. To abide in God through the keeping of His Word means that you have access to never-failing streams of living water. And this will result in a fruitful life, a life that produces good things. Your leaf will not wither. This means that you will thrive continuously, even in the midst of drought. I think that is the image here. Even in the midst of drought, even if the conditions all around you are very, very harsh, you will prosper, you will thrive, because your roots are sunk down deep into the rivers of God. And they will not fail you. If you ever look upon an arid desert scape and see a line of green trees, you know that there is a stream of water there. Though the environment is very harsh and though the drought has caused all other trees to wither, those flourishing trees have found a source of life. And so it is for the blessed man who delights in God's law, who walks in the way of life. His leaf does not wither. Even when the conditions of life are very harsh, he prospers. This means that he does not lose his vitality. For his roots are sunk down, not into the temperamental, unreliable, and ever-changing springs of this world, but into God who is faithful. Do you see it here? 
This is so powerful. I've watched people languish in life. And it is so hard to witness, to watch people languish in life, waste away. You begin to look closely and upon that and you begin to see the problem. The problem is that they have sunk their roots down deep into some created thing. Created things come and they go, don't they, brothers and sisters? They change. They are not reliable. They're not constant. And if you have sunk your roots down deep into some created thing, it is bound to fail you. Just a moment ago I asked you, what do you delight in? Here I could ask you the same question, but in a different way. What do you have your roots sunk into? Where do you draw your life from? What is the source of your vitality? And to put the matter bluntly, if your roots are sunk down into some created thing, it will certainly fail you. It will eventually run dry and you will wither. But if your roots are sunk down into God who is life, He will never fail you. Never will He run dry. Never will He change course so as to leave you dry. No, He is unchanging. He is faithful. He will sustain you in good times and bad and even through death itself. God is life. He's faithful. He's unchanging. We are to sink our roots down deep into Him. So we have considered the way of the righteous man. He or she is blessed and happy, for their delight is in the law of the Lord, and their roots are sunk down deep into the streams of the living God. Now let us briefly consider the way of the wicked. In verse 4 we read, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Could there be a greater contrast between the righteous and the wicked? The righteous are described as a fruitful tree nourished by never-ceasing streams of water whose leaf does not wither. Picture that. But the wicked are like chaff. The dry, dead, and nearly weightless husk that falls from grain when it is processed, which is driven away by the wind. That is what the wicked are like. The language here, the image here, if you stop to reflect upon it, I think you would agree with me. It's almost haunting. This is what the wicked are like. In life and in death. They're like chaff. They're blown away. They have no vitality, no substance. And to that point, look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Verses 5 and 6 mirror verses 1 and 2 with the repeat of the words, Wicked, sinners, and stand. Though wicked wicked stand together in this world, and though they may appear to stand with such strength at times, though they may appear to have such vitality, they will not stand in the end. That is the point. At the judgment they will be blown away like chaff, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish or come to nothing. To to know here means more than to be aware of. God is not only aware of the way of the righteous, He knows it, meaning that He cares for those on that path. He claims them as His own and He will keep them. 
The righteous will stand now. They will prosper now. And for all eternity, for God will make them to stand, for He cares for them. Psalm 1 is very beautiful. I would imagine that many know this psalm and love it, particularly verses 1 through 3. But I would hope that you would agree that it is a very serious psalm. It has to do with life and death. It has to do with judgment. And friends, there is a way that leads to life, and there is a way that leads to death. Eternal life and eternal death are in view here. At the beginning of this sermon, I told you that Psalm 1 is law. Law says, do this and you shall live. Whereas Gospel says, live because of what has been done for you. Psalm 1 is clearly law. And I did also warn you that God's law cuts in two directions now that we have fallen into sin. Not only does it show us the way we should go, it also reveals that we have not gone that way, at least not perfectly so. So the law guides us, but it also condemns us. And Psalm 1 does both of these things, doesn't it? It has shown us the way that we should go. But if I were to now stop and ask you the question, Brethren, have you kept this law perfectly? What would be the honest answer? No. We have violated this law in thought, in word, and in deed. In other words, no, I have at times taken counsel from the wicked. I have at times stood in the way of sinners. I have sat with the scornful. Certainly at times my delight has not been perfectly nor perpetually in the law of the Lord. No, in times past and even to this present day, my love is misdirected and impure. Have you kept this law? No. Not perfectly so. Not in thought, word, and deed. And so then I might ask this question. Who is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Who is he? He's not you and me. It is Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Only he walked in the way of life and perfectly so. In him there is no stain of sin. His food was to do his father's will and this he did. Having kept God's law perfectly and perpetually, he did enter into life. He finished the course, didn't he? He stood before the Father and he sat down upon the throne prepared for him. So what about us? What about us? Can we walk in the way of life that is described here? Can we be blessed and happy? Is it possible for us to stand in the judgment? The answer is, yes, certainly, but only in Christ, now that we are fallen into sin. We must be found in Him. We must repent and believe upon Him to have our sins washed away. We must trust in Him to be clothed in His righteousness. We must be renewed in the heart by His Word and Spirit. Remember, He is the vine, and we are the branches. Whoever abides in Him, and He in them, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from Christ you can do nothing. As the Father has loved Christ, so He has loved you. Abide in His love, brethren. If you keep His commandments, you will abide in His love. That is what the text says. Keep His commandments, abide in the love of Christ, just as He kept His Father's commandments and abides in His love. These things Jesus spoke to us so that His joy 
may be in us, and so that our joy may be full. So choose the way of life, but know this for certain, to walk in this way we must be found first in Christ, for we are sinners saved only by the grace of God through faith in the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your law, which shows us the way that we should go. And as we reflect upon your law, we do confess together that we have violated it in thought, word, and deed. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. We thank you for Christ crucified and risen. We thank you that he entered into life, having taken this way of life perfectly and perpetually. We thank you that we may be found in him. He is our refuge, our strength. We owe everything to you, O God. Your grace and mercy are truly great. And for those of us who are in Christ, who have taken refuge in Him, we pray that You would strengthen us day by day to walk in paths of righteousness for Your namesake. God, I pray also for our young people who have heard this message this morning, that they would take refuge in Christ, and that You would give to them the wisdom to walk in the right path. Father, bless us, O Lord, so that we might bless your holy name and bear fruit that is keeping with repentance. Father, use us to bring you glory, honor, and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.